How many of you in here this morning are wearing steel-toed shoes or boots? I think we're going to make them an OSHA requirement here from now on, maybe. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. Those of you who don't, God bless you. (laughs) Hope we see you next week. (laughs) We're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Continuing making our way through the book slowly but surely. Last week we were visiting the latest faux pas of the disciples, and there have been many if you've been around with us through the Gospel of Mark. And this latest one is they get caught once again in an embarrassing situation where Jesus asks them, apparently knowing fully well the answer already, but he asks them, uh, what are you guys talking about back there? And... uh, It was an embarrassing moment, and I say that it was an embarrassing moment because the text basically tells us that. Back in verse 33, when Jesus asked them what they were discussing, it said that they remained silent. Why? Because they were talking about, they were arguing about which of them were the greatest. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? I am. My name's Peter. Woo. Or something like that. Sorry, Tristan, you know, kind of rubs off on me there. Well, Jesus then answers them by way of taking a child that is there in the house where they were. And again, this is past information and review. And he uses the child as an example because the cultural view of that day of children was not high. And Jesus tells them that anyone who treats a child with respect that is due to any and every image bearer of God is in essence showing that respect to Jesus himself. And then he goes on even further and says that in showing such respect to Jesus, considering that our God is comprised of three persons and yet are one in essence and identity, that person then not only is treating Jesus with respect, but, but all, in fact, the persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, condensing some weighty theology that is here, the way we treat, the way we act, or the way we think about the least of these among us is indicative of our understanding of and our relationship with the living God. And in case you weren't here last week, again, the least of these can be anyone. It can be anyone that we might disdain because for whatever reason or for no reason, as is often the case, we do not esteem them as being worthy of our consideration. They are not quite up to that same awesome plane of humanity that we have attained to. Well, in our new material this morning... Jesus attempts to bring this home to the disciples, first by sort of coming at it in a positive way, taking a positive approach. In verse 41, which is where we pick up, Jesus says, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you that that person will not lose their reward. Now what may not be immediately noticed in that simple sentence is the fact of what it implies theologically. And what I mean is, is how would God know 
much less even care if someone offers to someone something as simple as a cup of water unless God is taking notice. I'm not sure that we consider often enough that our God is not just out there, sort of, you know, he started the, the whole ball rolling at creation and then he, he went away off into the far reaches of the universe and is just kind of uh, sitting in a, a big divine lounge chair, sipping big divine mint juleps, whatever those are. He's not this disinterested deity of those with a generic faith in some supreme being, however they imagine him, her, or it. What did Jesus say? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, Look, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It's funny, as I was sitting back there, true confessions on the drums this morning, during one of the, the uh, quiet moments, I'm just kind of looking out there the crowd, I realized there's, there's quite a few pates in here that that's not going to be a challenge to, for God to number every hair. I, just something I noticed, and I said, I know, I know. Hey, I'm getting there, Okay. <laughs> I heard that. (laughs) So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, how insignificant a silly little bird, and yet not one of them fall to the ground without the God of creation noticing. So God, it seems, is, among other things, quite vigilant in his attention to the way people treat others. And the reason for that is that it's an excellent barometer of who actually, not in theory, but who actually captivates our hearts. We're told, right, that by our fruit we will be known. Another way of saying this in Matthew 12, 34, is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We could equally say that out of the abundance of the heart, actions flow. So if this is true for the way we treat the least of these, thinking back again to last week's message, it seems doubly valid for the way we treat another Christ follower. And this applies, okay, get ready, this applies even within family structures. You don't get it yet? You will. What I mean by that is that the things that our Savior tells us isn't just for those outside the walls of our home. Okay, I'm still not getting it quiet. What are you getting at, Pastor? I don't like where this is going. (laughs) Sometimes we Christians are admirable imitators of Jesus to near or even perfect strangers. Sometimes we are admirable imitators of Jesus to casual acquaintances or to friends, extending all kinds of grace and respect and kindness to them. But our Christ-likeness somehow seems to get abandoned when it comes to those closest to us called relatives. You see, Luke chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That's not restricted in its application only to strangers or Christians outside of our familial relations, which can be tedious. 
What does Paul write to the church at Philippi? He says, look, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any practical value to do well, to do good, to do the right thing in Christ, if there is any consolation or if there's, there's any value of, of love in its practical outworking, if there's any fellowship, genuine relationship with the Holy Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now here it comes. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another, or rather treat one another, as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And you know what the very next verse is in the next several verses is, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be fought for and clung for and argued and bickered about over, but humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Let that one sink in deeply. So what is mind-boggling to me is that the God of the universe isn't some distant, far-off deity, but he's very concerned. And he is very aware of our dealings with others and with one another, whether for good or for bad. Well, Jesus began with a positive example, and then he moves now kind of in the other direction, teaching the same thing, though, but, but it, you know, it gets a little more negative. And he remains on the subject of the importance of recognizing and respecting the Imago Dei, that means the image of God that is impressed into every human being, even the lowliest, going right back to using the example of a child to the, due to their lowest state in culture. The Imago Dei, the impress of God, in Hebrews chapter 1, I love the way it puts it there, talking about Jesus, says that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature referring to God Almighty. He is the exact representation of his nature. That's the way it's translated. The word there in the original is the word character, which sounds strangely like character. Not character like he's a character, but character as in the makeup of God himself. And the Imago Dei is that image of God, that God-likeness, those attributes and character of God is stamped within, not just believers, but is stamped within everyone who is born into the world. And the word there in the day, the, the character, was used of the impress on a coin. So whether it was the image of Caesar or whether you take a quarter and you look at it, Whose character is on there? It's George Washington. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's who George Washington is. If you didn't know him and you had just that to look at, you'd be able to spot him. Oh, that's George Washington. How do I know? He's on the coin here. We have that impress upon our souls. Everybody does. And that's why human beings do deserve special consideration and recognition above all the rest of creation. I'm certainly not an advocator of abusing animals. 
but animals are qualitatively different and truly on a less strata by far than every human being because we have the image of God upon us. Nothing else in creation does. Whoever causes, Mark 9.42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now, growing up in, in nothing but suburban areas around the country as a child and into adulthood and everything else, I had no idea what a real millstone would be or what it would look like. I imagine that it's, uh, you know, a stone, okay, tie your neck. But I was out several years ago fishing at Shawmut Dam. And those of you who are out there know, I mean, it's hard to miss. As you're walking right along the shoreline, right where the parking area is, and you come right maybe maybe three feet, if that, off the, sh- off the, the shore into the water is a millstone that's about this big. I mean, it's humongous. And right in the middle, then there's the big hole where I guess the thing goes and the doobie turns and whatsoever does this and all of that. And when I saw that, the very first time I saw that, I went, wow, that's a millstone. And, of course, this passage came to mind. And what I was thinking about was, okay, remembering Jesus' words, taking that millstone now, fastening it to my neck, taking me out into the middle of the ocean, and just kind of tipping me overboard. And I thought, you know what? No matter who I was, no matter what kind of an Olympic gold medal swimmer I was, there's still only one way I'm going. It's down. And then being a former scuba diver and all that stuff, I sit there going, so what would you do? Would you, would you equalize the pressure in your ears because that goes real fast and it hurts? Or would you just, yeah, I, sorry, that's me. Anyway, that's a millstone. Stay on task. So here now the converse of what Jesus stated positively about giving one of his own a drink now, as I said, states it negatively. But the principle, which we don't want to lose in the metaphors, is this. God is aware of our conduct, both what we dish out and what we do not dish out and what we receive as well. And that is hoped to be an encouragement, not a threat. But the threat is a real part of the encouragement. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. Now, what does it mean to stumble a little one? Again, the word that's translated stumble there, and the original is the word scandalizo, which sounds strangely like our word to scandalize someone. And that's because that's where our word comes from. So what does it mean to scandalize someone? Well, uh, just a verbatim dictionary definition. It means to shock or horrify someone by a real or imagined violation of propriety or morality. From this point on in the message, I'm going to try and be as winsome as I can. I'm going to try and be gentle. I really am. I practice in the mirror being gentle. Hi. God's really angry. No, I just, I, anyway, so, no, I am serious, though. I, yeah. But I have to say what I'm going to say. Because the stakes are too high. 
And we are way too far down the road of the systematic cultural subversion of God's values to be subtle. It's too important to miss. So what does it mean to stumble a little one? Let me point out that Jesus' stern warning about scandalizing a little one is not restricted to believers who are the ones doing the stumbling. In other words, this does apply to unbelievers. And we know that because Matthew and Luke recording the same incident are much clearer than they are on the issue than Mark is. But let's start out, first of all, away from the immediate home front in a context that's maybe less threatening to begin with, of non-believers who are the ones doing the scandalizing. And of course, this is not exhaustive or comprehensive. It's just trying to give you a feel for the application of this important passage. Now, it's easy and it's popular in our day, especially by we Christians, to rip on the nameless, faceless media. And in that vein, one of the newer movies out, which... Caveat, I have not seen. I have read about it. I've looked it up. I've tried to see what it was about, read synopsis of it, and all that sort of thing. But The Princess and the Frog, out from Disney Corp, contains things, and I guess not even just in a quick sound, you know, flashby or whatever, but apparently the movie for children is full of voodoo, is full of Ouija board use, those of you know what that is, and full of just other aspects of the occult to include tarot card reading. Romans 16.19 says, Be excellent at what is good and innocent of evil. And we do our children, whoever does children a grave disservice, regardless of who they are or what their authority level is, by having to educate children in the ways of evil in order to understand something that maybe is beyond their age level or whatever. Just stay with me. I want to use another example that I'm very familiar with, that I have seen numerous times, because I love, among other things, I love the soundtrack from the movie The Little Mermaid. Truth be told, The Little Mermaid is a classic, but not in the way that we usually refer to movies as being classics. It is classic in the sense that it's an example of the level of subterfuge, that means deceit, which the devil from the garden forward has absolutely and masterfully perpetrated against mankind and continues to to this day and will until we are taken away. In the movie The Little Mermaid, the Disney Corporation elevates children above the level of their intentionally portrayed as idiotic parents. You take a rebellious teenager, you show her defy her parents' whims, her parents' instruction, her parents' loving orders, especially King Trident, who is portrayed, if you're familiar with the movie, which most of you probably are, who is portrayed as an authoritarian, old-fashioned, know-nothing father. And then you have beautiful Ariel. 
beautiful Ariel is the wise and the adventurous teen just trying to find out who she is so that above all else, she can be true to herself. By the end of the movie, King Trident, Ariel's dad, is repentant for being a loving, caring father, fulfilling his duty to direct his daughter's paths away from danger. Instead of Instead of, of standing as what a father is to be, whether it's liked or not, and if you've ever raised children or have children, you know that they don't appreciate our wisdom and experience. That's why they're children and under our care. But no, King Trident basically acknowledges what a buffoon he has been. Coming to see the wisdom of his obviously smarter teen daughter and the happiness that she discovered by breaking all the rules. Now, if one does not think that such amusing entertainment has an impact on children watching and that it doesn't have an impact on shaping their future values and their views and their habits, you're not a very astute observer of either culture or of people. Okay. Alert, let me come closer to home. Waterville. Please understand that when my children were in school and they went to Waterville High School, Barbara and I were deeply involved in Waterville, much to the dismay and the chagrin of the administration and the teachers, etc. Waterville being the hip and always progressive, and by progressive there, I'm translating it, early adopters of the game plan of darkness. We have right here in central Maine the wave of the future. It is called Educare. Okay, my email is pb at fefchurch.org. From their website, here's what it says, quoting, Educare is a high-quality learning and development center partnering with families and communities to ensure school readiness for children. Let me say it again. To ensure school readiness for children, birth, birth to age five. Did you hear? I said birth to age five. One more time. Birth to age five. My opinion No extra charge for this. This is the dream come true for Hillary Clinton and her book from years ago, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child, which is a euphemism for get the children away from the parents and their influence as soon as you can so that we can raise up children of the state. And if you think I am out to lunch or I'm just a rabid right wing whatever in there, you do your research and you will see the profound numbers of individuals who've said exactly that same thing, which I didn't find out till after I put it. I just wanted to see, am I in any kind of company here? Oh, yeah, it's all over the place. This is not my imagination. This is the goal of 
the whole bringing forth what is sometimes called a new world order. The educare concept is surrogate parenting. That means parenting in place of, not in cooperation with. I am telling you, when I was involved at Waterville High School, and they had the very controversial new pilot program for sex education, they had two curriculums. One that they showed the parents when they came in and demanded to see the curriculum and the one they actually used. Oh, yeah. And that was how many years ago? Things have not improved, I assure you. It is surrogate parenting by the hirelings of a state and federal government complete with government's absolute knowing intention to raise children in a godless environment. The educare concept is only unique in that it's, it is the goal to start at the cradle and go forward. This is nothing new. This has been the nation's public educational system steered by the philosophies of John Dewey called the father of education. And John Dewey began implementing his grand and godless vision for the future through the nation's classrooms with intention. He's not shy about it in his writings. Oh, but still, I mean, these things aren't ever really here at home, right? And now in the interest of not violating Romans 16.19, yes, about being innocent of evil, I'm trusting that most everybody knows what LGBT stands for. And I'm only going to use the T. I'm not even going to say it. I'm just going to say the letter T. Because we shouldn't even be bringing these things up to where little ears can hear these things and go, Mommy, what, what does that mean? What a despicable culture that imposes that on our children and upon its parents. The George Mitchell School, that's here in Waterville. See, this isn't out there. This isn't California, you know, the land of fruits and nuts. The George Mitchell School somehow, and I don't know how, caught the attention of a Virginia legislator by the name of the Honorable Eugene Delgadio. He's a five-term politician in Virginia. And in an email that somebody forwarded to me and shared with me, written to some guy named Jim Matthew, I don't know who he is, this is what Mr. Delgadio writes to Jim. I'm shaking my head in disbelief. Recently, a little first grade boy asked his mother if he was T. And if he could be, no, never mind, I can't go there. Why did he ask these questions? Because his classroom at Mitchell Primary School in Maine was teaching the T lifestyle. Instead of teaching the three R's at Mitchell Primary School in Maine, they're indoctrinating first graders to experiment with the T lifestyle. The Mitchell Primary first grade class had a guidance counselor read the T propaganda book called I Am Jazz 
to the entire class. Parents weren't given the opportunity or the option to protect their children from this disgusting and twisted propaganda that is the latest obscenity in the anti-family agenda. And he goes on quite a bit from there. George Mitchell School. Offensive though it may be in our culture today, Jesus' comment about losing one's reward, as he does in that passage, and stumbling little ones pertains to unbelievers in an ultimate way, meaning they are not among the redeemed, obviously, if they're not believers. But if you don't quite get why Jesus is so worked up about the stumbling of little ones, perhaps it will help to recall his sentiments expressed to the Pharisees of his day in Matthew 23, when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make one proselyte, that is, one conversion, to your perverse ways. And when he becomes one, you make him or her twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. The question to each one of us is, from whom are our children developing their life values, their morals, and their truths? The question isn't, who should they be learning them from? We would agree on that, I trust, I hope. But who in actuality are they learning from? Well, let's consider. First of all, a child sits in front of influential adults called educators five days a week from ages 5 to 18, unless they are so unfortunate as to be there from birth on in a place like Educare. And this they do for what? A little over nine months out of the year, basically. Additionally, from a CNN poll just done last year, which is, is current for, a, you know, for the way statistical reporting goes, teenagers, that would be age 13 to 18, spend, this even surprised me, and I'm not easily surprised, teenagers spend nine hours a day, and tweens, that's 8 years old to 12 years old, spend on average 6 hours a day on media. And they left it that broadly defined, which you have to to with today's technology. We used to just say television or whatever. 9 hours a day, a day, and 6 hours a day on the media. 70% roughly of of teenagers own not just a cell phone, but a smartphone, which is, what is it? It's a computer, right? A little over 50% of tweens, 8 to 12, own their own tablet. Now, let's compare those considerations with how much time daily we as parents actually spend building values and morals and ideals into our children's souls and minds? Can or do even we stumble our children? And if we can, does the metaphor about the millstone and losing one's reward and all, does it even apply to us as believers? Well, it certainly doesn't apply in that ultimate way because we're redeemed. We understand that. But I tell you, based on all kinds of other scriptures, 
the millstone of consequences for the offending parties and unfortunately for the offended are profound. And so what are some ways that we stumble our children? Because first of all, I trust that we're not talking about teaching them there is no God. I don't think that's an issue in Christian homes or that God doesn't care about them or about us or about our welfare. But what about how we teach our children what we really believe and what is really important, not by what we're saying to them, but how we live, how we model life before them in a home. How about the way mothers and fathers talk to one another? Raising our children with dysfunction because they're being brought up in places where mom and dad have no problem. They don't even think about calling each other names when they're having a disagreement or a little dispute or things get heated. Calling each other names. Using ridicule to try and get your point across. Or worse, throwing things. How do they see the adults in their life settling things? That's how they grow up, thinking what's normal, what's to be expected. And we wonder why brutality at the youngest levels and bullying and everything else is, seems to be rampant today. We're not just talking about they, them, and those out there. I spent a lot of time with our children in those formative years, right up through about junior high, high school. Things start getting a little rough, as you know, with scheduling and everything else. So you've got to take advantage of the time when you have it. I was big on scripture memorization because that's the way I was raised spiritually as an adult. And so I'd go to the kids, and we would make it into a game and have verse offs. So we'd call them and everything else. One of the passages I remember is Ephesians 4.29. Got to get me started. Let no unwholesome word proceed forth out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it might impart grace to those who hear. You know why I had them memorize that? It wasn't for their benefit. <laughs> it was for Barb's benefit. <laughs> Barb struggled with it. No, I'm kidding. I really am kidding. There is no one sweeter or more steady in temperament than she. And so I have to make up for her. What do we unintentionally teach the little ones about the importance of the church gathered in community worship together as commanded in Scripture? Meaning consistent church attendance, participation, and service. Do we teach them that it's something that really is vital or is it something that's just nice when there's nothing else going on? And I really honestly, because this is rampant today in all churches, including this one, what will the church of the next generation be like if raised in this kind of environment rather than hearing and seeing that priority lived out before them, or that lack of priority being lived out before them. 
Hebrews 10 gives the warning about forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. But rather, we're to be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What kinds of things do the little ones see mom and dad put into their own hearts and minds? Now, this may strike, this next illustration, oh boy, uh, might strike you as being, you know, the big buzzword sometimes when we don't like things we hear that are legitimately scriptural is, ah, that's legalistic, you're being legalistic, you're a legalist or whatever. So what I'm saying here is not, not something that is defined in scripture that you have to do. This was Barb and my personal preference for the way we wanted to do this particular thing in our home. So as the kids were getting older and they started wanting to listen to music and all that sort of stuff, we decided, you know what, we're going to make a hard and fast rule that is for the entire household, meaning for mom and dad as well, and that is no secular music. Now, is that because secular music is inherently evil or wicked? Absolutely not. But you see, we have the discernment and the ability to know what we can and can or should and should not listen to, but the kids don't, which means if they come to me now that something isn't Christian, as my son did when he was in fifth grade, and very legitimately so, now I've got to sit there and listen to this whole album. You remember what an album is, some of you, (laughs) or a cassette tape. Now, I've got to sit there and listen to the 12 songs by Jesus People USA, which, by the way, is an awesome. And, and this, see, I'm confusing you, that they are Christians. But there was so much, and legitimately so, based on their inner city, you know, drugged out type of ministry to people's ministry, that in order for my son to even understand the music, he would have to be educated in the ways of evil. Romans 16, 19. Well, I wouldn't have known that unless I went through the lyrics of every song in that album too. So I just said, no secular music. And even with some of the stuff he was getting into with Striper and all the, the, heavy, the Christian metal and all that stuff, I still had to go through and stuff. But I just thought it's going to be easier for us to be consistent. They'll see a model before them. No secular music. Mom and dad live by it. We can live by it too. Doesn't mean they like it, but they at least see a consistency in all of that. What did Paul write to the Corinthians? All things are lawful, meaning all things are, are, are okay now that you're in Christ, but not all things are profitable. And he's not talking about financial. He's talking about meaning good for a person. All things are lawful or permissible, but not all things edify or not all things build up. I mean, you're free, sports fans, to go out and have five cups of coffee before lunchtime if that's your thing. But in the long run that's probably not going to be too good for your overall health. Stumbling a child, you see, and this was my whole point in trying to just give little feelers here of all of this, is a rather all-encompassing warning about steering children in the wrong direction. But steering them by not steering them in an anti-God direction. But one thing we can say for certain from the passage is God does not take lightly the way a child is treated today. And by that, I'm not talking about simply physically. God considers it highly abusive. Highly abusive. Not to put up protective barriers for our children or worse, 
steering them down a wrong path, or even worse still, encouraging and enabling them in the way of wickedness. And that is where we are today, and not merely from the public. When my children were at Waterville High School, and they weren't goody-goodies, I didn't realize the extent to which they weren't goody-goodies till long after they were out of high school. And they thought it was fun to be ratting out each other now finally. But they would come home and even they were dismayed that their friends' parents were acquiring and providing for their children illegal substances. And I'm not talking about just alcohol. And providing a place for not only the imbibing of it, but other things that they deemed, well, they're going to do it anyway, so we're going to have a safe place for them to do it. Really? That's what it means to stumble, to scandalize a little one. And I hope you get the feel for now that a little one doesn't mean a five-year-old. A little one is right on through. Jesus is so deeply concerned about the way we use our authority and that we live lives of example and not just giving them words and theories and ideologies that are not applied. And by the way, just as a little side note, I'm done. A woman came up to me after the first service. She said, did you know that I worked at Educare? I said, nope. She said, well, I don't any longer. I worked there four years, and I was fired. And she didn't really know why she was fired. She said she supposed it may be because of her license plate, which was something like for him, or I don't remember what it was, or praise the Lord, I don't remember. But she informed me of something that, that totally blew me away because, because if there's one thing about the, the subterfuge of Satan is he likes to, to take godly things and totally co-opt it and pervert it. And so when I think about the word love, I would, I would think that at some place like Educare, they'd be, there'd be all kind of love talk going on. She said, we were not allowed to use the word love. And I said, what? She said, no, if you told a child like you love them, you're getting reprimanded, formal reprimand. And I said, wow. And she said, if you, have you ever been there? I said, no, I've never been over there. She goes, when you go in there and other people notice this, even people who work there, she said, you walk in the place, it's a beautiful structure, and there's just this chilling cold, like a, almost a, a, the cold of death that inhabits that place. Remember, that's pb at fefchurch.org. Let me just say in closing, Let me say in closing, for the Christian teachers and educators involved in the system, okay, don't take what I'm saying personally because I say God bless you and increase your tribe if you are there not just rolling over and going along with things. And I'm not talking about making trouble but you're there as an ambassador of Christ. And yes, I'm going to single out Debbie Clark only because she's the one I'm most familiar with from being on the worship team with her for many years. We both have an affection for little uh, um, 
creches, you know, okay, nativity scenes. Well, Debbie's been collecting them for years. She has over a hundred different sizes and types and made in different colors of little nativity scenes, which she has displayed as it grows in her classroom. She's a, uh, a teacher over at Winslow Elementary School, which she has displayed proudly and without problem every year as it's grown now to over a hundred throughout the winter and the Christmas season. And you see, it is still, whether people know it or not, and most teachers don't, even Christian teachers don't realize, that if a child asks you a question, what is this, Miss Clark? What does that mean? What's that all about? Absolutely constitutionally protected, not that that means much anymore, but still constitutionally protected that she can explain to them what the nativity is all about, perfectly within the rights of church and state. So don't, don't walk away going, ah, Man, I'm so offended. I work in the public schools and I, you know, work and love those kids with my until blood's coming out of my eyeballs. Good on ya. But that doesn't change the system or the intent and the reality of it. Okay? <laughs> is that I don't know, does that help anything? I don't think so. Let's stand up. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the patience of this congregation. Lord, I I really pray that your Holy Spirit has tweaked many spirits in this place. Even, Lord, as you brought people across Barbara and my path who loved us enough so many times to tweak us in these same exact areas because they loved us and cared for us enough to risk offending us and losing our friendship. Dear God in heaven, you tell us that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. So I pray, O God, they would feel the kiss of your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name. Amen.